In her book, Cast, Isabel Wilkerson tells the story of her house that had been built generations in the past. When she first moved into the home, she noticed that in one of the walls in the corner up near the ceiling, there was a little bit of plaster. It was like, it didn't look right. It was a little discolored and it was a little crumbly and bulging, but you know, I mean, these things happen. Doesn't, didn't appear too concerning to her. But over time, that area started to bulge even more. And pretty soon from that area, a crack started going across the whole ceiling. And as it worsened, she finally called in an inspector who couldn't immediately diagnose what the problem was just by looking at it. You know, it just looked like a crack. And it looked like people had noticed it in the past and they'd put some plaster over it, but it kept on appearing and getting worse over time. So the surface damage was obvious, but in order to prevent further cracks, what he realized he needed to do is he needed to look underneath all of the layers of paint and plaster and wallpaper. He needed to see the structural damage that lay underneath. Wilkinson explains that owning an old house requires a lot of responsibility. There are dangers and idiosyncrasies that over time can turn into rotting floorboards or collapsing stairs or leaky roofs. The owner of an old house knows that whatever you are ignoring won't go away. You ignore the underlying damage at your own peril. She goes on to write this. America is an old house. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable loam and rock, heaving and contracting over the generations, cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people might rightly say, I had nothing to do with how all this started. I have nothing to do with the sins of my past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, none of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are. The current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars of joists, but they're ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is in fact on our hands. Unaddressed, the ruptures and diagonal cracks will not fix themselves. It's the end of her quote. Whether we like it or not, we are some of the heirs of this country. We all see the widening cracks and the holes in the roof built to protect us, don't we? And it's up to us to take that infrared camera to look at the underlying structures. If we don't look at these underlying structures, we ignore them at our own peril. Now, I believe personally that our conversation about racism has made huge advancements in the past five years. Five years ago, when we started to hear that we were part of the white supremacy culture 
we had a huge backlash within our denomination. Many of us who identify as white liberals felt this as an attack, as a dismissal of our life's work as agitators and activists. Over time, though, we were able to settle down a little, right? And examine the message, the message that was really an evaluation we needed to hear about our infrastructure, our system of democracy. We will need to hear this message over and over again in our life. We are not going to comprehend this, especially the first few iterations. At the same time, we need to begin the discussion of how we might begin the process of repairing the damage that's happened. Just as ignoring the damage to an old home and delaying needed repairs will lead to the collapse of the house, ignoring the damage done to our country by slavery and the perpetuation of racial mistreatment will cause the collapse of this democracy unless we can begin to repair it. Indeed, indeed, if you've been paying attention the past six years, you have seen the alarming way that the fabric of democracy, justice, and equity in America has been ignored and destroyed by political leaders, the people who we have elected. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote an article for the Atlantic Magazine called The Case for Reparations, which I highly recommend. He draws the connection between Western democracy and slavery. He states, and I quote, America begins in black plunder and white democracy, two features that are not contradictory, but complementary. The men who came together to found the independent United States dedicated to freedom and equity either held slaves or were willing to join hands with those who did. None of them felt entirely comfortable about the fact, but neither did they feel responsible for it. Most of them had inherited both their slaves and their attachment to freedom from an earlier generation, and they knew the two were not unconnected. The end of quote. Our democracy was reliant on forced labor of enslaved people for the first 250 years, and the wealth of America is not just in the work itself that was done, it was in the possession of other people. When slavery was abolished in the 1960s, there was some talk of reparation. And there was a promise that all free slaves would receive 40 acres and a mule. But instead of following through on promises, and instead of acknowledging the need to heal the damage done to all these enslaved workers, the reparations were paid to the slave owners who received $300 for each emancipated slave compensating them for their loss of property. The next 100 years in history were the Jim Crow years. In the Southern states, a secondary form of slavery came into practice through unfair sharecropping practices and the leasing of incarcerated people, the majority of whom were African-Americans convicted of minor crimes such as vagrancy. And in the North, politicians, banks, and civic associations colluded to pin black people in the ghettos where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. They were given the worst jobs for the poorest wages. They were systematically taken advantage of 
and they were the targets of police brutality. Instead of making an effort to repair the damage, there continued to be a culture of exploiting African-American people as resources for America. We are in an era where we're just beginning to internalize the justices of both the North and the South, beginning to see the systems that benefit white bodies at the cost of bodies of color. At some point though, we need to move beyond the intellectualization of racism and talk about healing, repairing the damage. We are averse to talking about reparation. As soon as the word reparation comes up, a barrage of questions immediately follows. Who's going to pay? How much are we going to pay? Can we afford to pay all that is past due? We actually don't know how reparations might work, but this country has not even begun being able to agree to have a discussion about it. Each year from 1989 until 2017, when he retired, Congressman John Conyers Jr. introduced House Bill 40, the Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. All this bill proposes is that we study the idea of reparations. It never made it to the House floor in Conyers' lifetime. Conyers, who died in 2019, once said, we study the water, we study the air. Can't we even study this issue? This bill does not authorize one red cent to anyone. I'm happy to say that the bill finally did get sponsored by Cory Booker in 2020, but it has not made it any further than past the House floor at this point. The talk of reparation is a conversation that examines the very foundations of our history and our democracy. It may be that after serious debate and discussion, such as pro proposed by House Bill 40, we find we can never fully recompense what's owed. But we could discover a lot about ourselves. And perhaps that's what's frightening us. The idea of reparations threatens something much deeper, America's heritage, history, and our standing in the world. Tanahisi Coates writes these words, won't reparations divide us? Not any more than we're already divided. The wealth gap merely puts a number on something we feel but cannot say that America prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in its distribution. What is needed is an airing of family secrets, settling with old ghosts. What is needed is a healing of the American psyche and the banishment of white guilt. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handoff, more than a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. End of quote. We need a national reckoning. We need to take that infrared light and examine the foundational structure of our home. We need to do this as individuals, examining the advantages of our lives and where they came from. And we need to do this as a nation. I do believe that the very foundation of this country rests on the original sin of slavery 
and the fractures we see today that divide states and divide families comes from an unwillingness to really examine this. It's an underlying rot that has been ignored and our democracy is falling in ruin around us. As long as we ignore the rot in our infrastructure, we will only be in a defensive posture and we will not heal that fear that is in our hearts and the fractures that are in our souls. To be honest, I don't know where we go from here. I know that we alone can't fix this. We need to be in closer proximity to those most impacted and we need to let them lead us. At the same time, we can't hold back from the work. It's an uncomfortable position to be in, isn't it? But part of this work is learning to be in that place of discomfort. The practices that Resma Monikam encourages, the one that we did today with the humming, they help us, they connect us to the present moment so we can best participate. One of the things I love that he does is he works with police and he works in riot situations. And he does the very practice that we did here earlier today of humming and finds that it helps people settle into their bodies more in a way. And he encouraged us to practice ahead of time so that when called on to do that, we have the resources on hand. We need the spiritual renewal that will only begin with the full reckoning of our history. And we each need to begin that work this day. And we can begin that by learning to recognize and accept discomfort while deliberately placing ourselves in those places that unsettle us. Let us do this journey into uncomfortable reconciliation together. Blessed be my friends. These are the words of Reverend Teresa Soto. I'm not prepared to hear what you, I'm not prepared to hear you say one thing and watch you do another without even mentioning it. I'm not talking about mistakes. You know, we all make those. Sometimes we speak too soon and think too little. We worry more about procedures than promises. We let fear and, and guilt keep our choices and actions small. Those things, common and human, keep calling us forward to different, better choices. Now, I'm thinking of a different thing. In which you know the right thing to do and spend entire notebooks of calculations on figuring out how not to do it. Or conversely, you give it no thought at all. It's understandable that to learn, the student must be ready. And if you choose not to be ready, while the world cries out for your help, or choose to linger in indecision and shrug off the human cost, you are wasting 
gentle flexibility of grace. And as Frederick Douglass said, using liberty for unholy license. You must account for this day, choose justice. You must account for your gifts, generate love. Your effort in community is a precious resource. Take courage, move with urgency toward every possibility. Please hurry, don't stop. 